This evening's reading is from John chapter 4, and you can find that on page 1066 of the Church Bibles. That's John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. 1066. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons, and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will, won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship it was in, is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. 
Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. We're going to jump to verse 39. Many Samaritans believe. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more came to believe. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is the word of God. Great. Well, good evening. Uh, Let me reiterate the warm welcome Clive has already uh, given you this evening, especially if you're visiting or not a regular here at the evening service. It's great to have you here with us this evening. And in fact, you've timed it well, because as you'll see behind us, we're starting a new mini-series tonight called Transformed Lives where over the next seven weeks we will be uh, looking at seven instances in the New Testament that demonstrate the dramatic transformation Jesus had on the lives of certain individuals. Alongside these biblical examples of transformation, we'll also be interviewing individuals within the church and hearing how they became Christians and how their lives have been transformed by the gospel. And tonight we'll be hearing uh, from Emma a little bit later in the service And just a heads up for those in Cypher, Emma will also be coming along to Cypher afterwards and you'll have an opportunity to grill her there and say, do you be thinking of questions that you can ask her to? Along with that, there'll be pizza and cake. So if you're tired from Holiday Club, you know, come along anyway, it'll be worth it. My hope and prayer uh, for this series um, is that by the end of these seven weeks, you will have experienced that Jesus does make a difference. A tangible, visible, perceptible, profound difference. That Jesus makes a real difference. We'll be looking at real lives 2,000 years ago and also today. And we'll be seeing real transformation. Real lives, real change, transformed lives. And what I don't want us or for anyone here to go away thinking is that Christianity is a nice hobby an optional extra on the road of life. Christ is the catalyst of change. And in each of these cases, we'll witness how certain specific aspects of the lives of these individuals were transformed. But we'll also recognise that there was a complete transformation from death to life, from lost to saved. And the individual in focus this evening is no different from that. So turn back in your Bibles with me, if you close them, back to John chapter 4, which is also on uh, page 1066. There you go. Where uh, we see this Samaritan woman who met with Jesus at a well, and whose life, as a result, was completely changed forever. Here in John chapter 4, we see this woman go from discontentment to satisfaction. And let me ask the question as we start this evening, 
Where do you find your sense of meaning? Where do you go to find satisfaction? The obvious places, money, sex, fame. The everyday places, family, friends, food, fun. We can shape our lives around these things, can't we? If I earned that much more, then I would be happy. I could afford that new bike, that new game, the new iPhone, yet another new iPhone, and I'd be able to send my kids to a better school, nicer clothes, more shoes. If only I had that much more, then I would be satisfied. You might not admit it, but we've all thought it at some point, and we can't kid ourselves. The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow does not and will not satisfy our heart's desires. If that's what we're living for, if the paycheck at the end of the month is what gets you out of bed, then you're going to be disappointed with life. Because however much money you have, it will never, never be enough. Imagine uh, overnight you became a millionaire. Surely then you would find satisfaction. You'd find happiness and contentment. Well, back in 2003, British teen... Uh, oh, that's the wrong one. British teen Callie Rogers uh, won the lottery and took home £2 million. And she was only just 16 years old. I wonder, guys, in Cypher, what would you do with £2 million? I think we'll discuss that later this evening. But surely Callie found satisfaction in life. Well, only six years later, after developing a drug addiction and attempting to commit suicide on a number of occasions, she filed for bankruptcy. She had nothing left. And it's not just Callie. 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt within five years, which I thought was crazy when I read that stat. And there are countless other similar stories out there that tell us when it comes to living for money and all that it can buy, we never quite have enough. You're always left wanting that much more. And it might not be money for you or stuff, but you will be longing after something. You'll be seeking to find satisfaction from somewhere in something. But again, we discover, don't we, that one Krispy Kreme is never enough that your BFF turns out to be more, more flaky than forever, that that ideal relationship you've been waiting for all your life turns out to be really hard work, that the family you thought would bring you contentment brings headaches and heartache. We might find some satisfaction in those things, but it never lasts for long. A sense of emptiness is common in human experience. Rock star uh, and band aid creator and humanitarian ambassador Bob Geldof was once asked whether he'd found satisfaction. Not at all, he said. I don't know what that would mean. I am unfulfilled as a human being. Otherwise, why are these large holes here, he said, pointing to his heart. Everything I do is because I am frightened of being bored, because I know what is down there in those holes. I am frightened of it, 
it makes me depressed. How do you respond to what Bob Geldof says there? A man who seemingly has it all. Where do you tend to look for satisfaction? If not fame, fortune, family or friends, then where? The prevalent question that we're forced to ask ourselves as we begin to look at this encounter with Jesus is how can I find true, lasting satisfaction? Well, it's in John 4 that we see the answer to that question. Read again with me from verse 4 of chapter 4. Now, he had, uh, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. It's at this well that Jesus asks this Samaritan woman for a drink of water. And to get the full force of the transformation that we'll see tonight, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context of the situation. Because there should be question marks flying up as I read those verses. It's important to remember who the Samaritans were in the eyes of the Jews. Oh, that's a whole load of slides, never mind. Uh, the Samaritans were socially, religiously, and ethnically despised by the Jews. Samaria was uh, north of Judea and had been depopulated and then repopulated successively. Uh, and invading forces had taken people out of the land and then refilled it again with a melting pot of different nationalities, with different cultures and different religions. And so the Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans, hated them as religiously, socially and ethnically inferior. And in turn, the Samaritans despised the Jews. So with that in mind, we can ask, with the Samaritan woman, why is Jesus a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, let alone asking her to serve him water. It's interesting to note that the literal translation of those words in verse 9, they're in parenthesis, uh, translate as Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. I think that gives us helpful insight into how these two groups of people got on, or rather didn't. And as a Jewish man, it would genuinely have been socially unthinkable for Jesus to speak to this woman here as he does. And yet, against all the social conventions, against all the cultural and national expectations, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman and asks her for water. But amazingly, that's not the most remarkable thing that we see in these verses, because in verse 10... We witness Jesus offering living water. Well, what on earth is living water? What is Jesus talking about here? It's in response to the woman's query of why Jesus was breaking all protocol and asking her for a drink that Jesus says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Water. 
And it's all a bit too much for the Samaritan woman who unexpectedly comes across this stranger who should have nothing to do with her and who has nothing to draw water with. And yet there he is at this well offering her water, living water. Her response, I think, is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. You have nothing to draw with, for the well is deep. No bucket equals no living water. Duh. Sir, you can't even draw your own water, let alone this magical living water you're, you're speaking of. But Jesus replies again and clarifies what he means by living water in verse 13. Have a look at it. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing down at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And remember where they are. They're in a desert in the middle of the day in Palestine. It doesn't really get any hotter or drier than this. And you can you know, almost feel your mouth drying up just thinking about it. In fact, I'm going to have a quick drink of water. Oh, that's better. And it's into that context that Jesus talks about never thirsting again. This is true satisfaction. And this is the first part of the transformation. Jesus' Jesus offer what you could have and could be. The first part of the transformation. This water that Jesus offers doesn't just bring lasting satisfaction... But verse 14, the water Jesus gives will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Those things that we so often run after, so often shape our lives around, money, relationships, pleasure, they're all about making the most of the short time that we have in this life. Whilst in complete contrast to that, what Jesus offers here is satisfaction, not just in this life, but for all eternity. In Jesus, we can have eternal life. Life forever, without that empty feeling, without that lack of purpose, without that hungering after something more, without that thirst for satisfaction. How incredible is that? That is what Jesus offers Surely we can't do anything else other than say with the woman in verse 15, give me this water. Jesus has made the offer. She has shown, he has shown rather, what she could be and what she could have. But she still doesn't fully get it. She still thinks in some way that this is about physical water and that what Jesus offers will mean that she won't have to keep going back to the well again and again. And so we move on to our next step of transformation, the conviction what she was. After responding as she does, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replies. And Jesus, knowing her heart and her situation, says, you are right when you say you have no husband. Verse 18, the fact is, You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Wow. We talk about some serious burn. And you might be thinking, isn't this a bit harsh? 
Why is this woman's love life relevant to this conversation? Well, it's completely relevant when we recognise that this is how the woman had been trying to find satisfaction in relationships. And we see from the mess that her love life is in that her, hang- her, hang- oh dear. That her ha- hunger, not hanger, we did that last time, for satisfaction is completely unfulfilled. Contentment doesn't look like the affair falling on from husband number five, which incidentally sounds like a perverse perfume. Note how Jesus handles the woman here. He lovingly offers satisfaction and eternal life. And yet, he also shows her the mess her life is in. He convicts her of her wrongs. He doesn't shy away from the fact that she has sinned. And we need to mark the absolute necessity of conviction of sin before a soul is converted to God, before transformation takes place. Did you you spot that how she had previously been unmoved, cynical, still not getting the big picture, until Jesus exposes her sin? Jesus' words, call your husband, pierce her conscience like an arrow. She felt that her spiritual disease was discovered. For the first time, she saw herself. And until an individual sees themselves as God sees them, then they will be unmoved. A person will never value the gospel medicine until they recognise the disease that's infecting them. Never does a person see the beauty of Christ as saviour until they discover the ugliness of their sinful lives. Ignorance of sin will always equal a neglect of Christ. A month ago, back at the end of July, I went on holiday with uh, some friends to Devon. And of course, when in Devon in summer, you have to uh, hit the beach. And inevitably, being the pale Englishman that I am, sunburn is always a high likelihood. But we were having a great time in the sea, playing beach volleyball, all the things that you do uh, when you're on a beach. And when you're doing that stuff, you don't notice yourself burning, do you? And it wasn't until much later that evening when someone gave me an excruciating pat on the back, that I noticed something was wrong. And looking in the mirror confirmed to me the sorry sorry and very red state my back was in. You see, I only realised I needed aftersun when I felt the pain of the burn and saw how red my back was. Well, here, for this woman, Jesus' question and the revelation of her numerous past relationships was the sting of the burn. And in convincing her of her wrongs, Jesus shows this woman that she's been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Maybe it's not a a string of failed relationships for you, but if you're here this evening and you think Jesus' offer of living water, of lasting satisfaction, isn't really for you because, well, you're feeling pretty content in life at the moment, then stop and evaluate. Does true contentment look like fishing for likes on Facebook and constantly seeking social approval from your friends? Does satisfaction look like shopping sprees in an attempt to make you feel happy 
and fill that empty feeling in your life. It's contentment, staring at your laptop screen late into the night, chasing after immediate pleasures. Jesus locates our emptiness and thirst, and in highlighting it to us, reveals our great need for what he has to offer. It's here we recognise that you need Jesus for satisfaction and not the sales in festival place. It's here we recognise that you need Jesus and what he offers to be free of that never-ending pursuit of pleasure, that constant desire for approval. And so having made the offer of satisfaction and life to this woman, Jesus then shows her her great need for it in convicting her of her past. So, we've seen that this woman, uh, we've seen what this woman was and is, but we've also seen what this woman could be and could have. And now thirdly, we see the solution, the means of transformation. Having revealed her past and shown that he knows her impossibly well, the Samaritan woman then begins to wonder exactly who this guy in the middle of the desert is. And Jesus' identity is one of the key themes in John's Gospel and one of the main points of this passage. These verses are rich with meaning for us. Jesus shows this woman her need for the satisfaction and life that he offers by revealing her past. But in addition to that, the supernatural knowledge of this woman that Jesus has provides a clear sign of his divinity. And there can be no doubt that this is the gospel writer's intent to show us who this man Jesus is. Contextually, in the surrounding passages to this one, we see in chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and confirming the role of God's son uh, who was sent into the world. In verse 31 to 38 of this chapter, we see Jesus' identity and role confirmed to do the will of my father. And in the following chapter, we see miraculous healings and Jesus confirming that God is his father, thus stating that he's equal with God. So when it comes to this passage, we need to be on the lookout for pointers to Jesus' identity and mission. The woman begins by stating that he is some kind of prophet and then again brings up the issue of the Jewish-Samaritan divide. This time, uh, it's a question over the difference in worship. The Samaritans on the mountain, whilst the Jews worship in the temple in Jerusalem. But as Jesus states that there will be a time when neither the mountain nor the temple will be the place where you go to worship. Something that would have been deeply shocking for Samaritan and Jew alike to hear. Jesus says true worshippers will worship the universal all-present God in spirit anywhere. And this will be made possible by Jesus and in Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, Jews and Samaritans will be united in worshipping the one true God in spirit and truth. The woman being a Samaritan would have known, uh, would have had a knowledge of the Pentateuch, the first part of the Bible, and would have known the promises given through Moses, of a rescuer who would save and unite all peoples together, a Messiah. 
And so she says in verse 25, I know that uh, the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And wonderfully, amazingly, incredibly, Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is how the transformation takes place. From discontented to satisfied. This is how the offer of eternal life is made. The incredible transformation is only possible only through the Messiah, the Christ, the promised rescuer. The offer, the conviction, the solution, Jesus, the Messiah, and now finally, the transformation itself. In verse 28, following the disciples' return to Jesus, she leaves her water jar there. The very reason that she was there in the first place. She's forgotten all about it. And she runs back to her town to share with everyone the news of the Messiah. She went to the well with an empty vessel and leaving the water jar there, she left with a full heart that had to share the good news with others. Verse 29, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. She is captured by the wonder of Jesus, who he is and what he has to offer. Are you? Maybe you've lost that first love that you had for Jesus when you first became a Christian. And the question is, does Jesus drive you to leave your old ways, what you once prioritised and lived for, what you chased after for satisfaction, and do you go to Jesus to find that contentment? Or have you started going somewhere else? Does he drive you simply to talk to others about how wonderful he is? For this woman, he certainly did. And the transformation can be seen. There is clear evidence. Her passion to speak of Jesus results in the whole town literally going out to Jesus. Verse 30 again, they came out of the town and made their way towards him. She didn't wait for a more convenient time. She didn't use complicated apologetics. She didn't have a degree in theology, and she hadn't even been to Oak Hill. She'd had a transformed life and heart satisfaction. And all she says is, come and see. Come and see the Messiah. Out of the abundance of her heart, her mouth spoke. If you've gone to Jesus for that offer of eternal life that he offers, does your life reflect it? If you call yourself a Christian here this evening, then the church needs it. The state of the world demands it. Everyone who has accepted this gift must allow their lives, words, actions to show the transformation that has taken place. And in doing so, point others to Jesus, as this woman does here. And if you doubt that Jesus actually makes a difference, does he really make a difference? Well, if you doubt that, then just look at the impact of this transformed life. 
Look at the impact that it has on her town. I think these must be some of my favorite verses. So uh, read with me from verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Doesn't that fill you with joy? That a broken woman like this could have her life so dramatically turned around in the space of an afternoon. This woman was a new creature with a new heart that was full of love and wonder for her Messiah. Her life was transformed. The woman whose love life was an utter mess finds love like she has never known before. The social outcast who had to go in the middle of the day to get water out of shame when no one else was around now brings her whole town to Jesus. Everything she once prioritised and counted highly is now secondary to Jesus. In Philippians 3 verse 8 we read, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And isn't that true for this woman? This man, the Messiah, surpasses all those things she used to live for, strived after. That satisfaction that never lasted quite long enough was never quite in her grasp. It's forgotten. And J.C. Ryle, a preacher and theologian, commented on these verses saying, it's quite a long quote, but it is really worth paying attention to. We should mark the priceless excellence of Christ's gift when compared with the things of this world. Drinking all that this world has to offer will only leave you thirsty. There is no heart satisfaction in this world until we believe uh, in Christ. Jesus alone can fill up the empty places of our inward person. Jesus alone can give solid, lasting, enduring happiness. The peace that he imparts is a fountain which once set flowing within the soul flows on to all eternity. With Jesus, the Samaritan woman's desires are met. Oh, that's not supposed to be, I apologise. With uh, Jesus, the Samaritan woman's desires are met. Contentment, peace, satisfaction, they're all found and they're known and are hers into eternity. And they can be yours too. You too, like this lost and broken woman, can know satisfaction and contentment. You too can have eternal life. He promises to bring us into an intimate relationship with God uh, as our Father, which will completely satisfy your thirst for contentment. Have you recognised Jesus' amazing offer here? Have you recognised your wrongs and your need for transformation? Have you understood that Jesus is the only way that transformation can be brought about in your life? If you doubt it, just look at the life of this woman. 
Jesus brings real change to real lives. And in conclusion, note Christ's willingness to reveal his identity and purpose to a sinful, immoral foreigner. Here, more clearly than perhaps anywhere else in the Gospels, do we see Jesus confirming his identity as saviour of the world. And note, it's not to some important uh, religious figure, it's not to the wealthy, it's not to the highly academic, or even the upstanding members of the community. No, it's to a social outcast and a sinner. And that is the heart of the gospel. And that is the heart of this series of transformed lives. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless and to save the lost. From this account and the accounts that we will go on to look at together, we see Jesus' willingness and desire to show mercy and grace and offer salvation. So whatever doubts you have this evening, whatever aspects of Christianity that you might struggle with, never, never doubt that Jesus loves to save the lost and that he is as willing to welcome sinners as he is able to save and transform them. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this uh, wonderful picture of transformation. We thank you for this Samaritan woman who was a real person. And we thank you that we can look at that account and see real transformation. Father God, I pray that you will now help each and every person here this evening to consider whether or not their lives have been transformed by the gospel, by your wonderful work in us. Help us to long only after you and to know that satisfaction can only be found in you. We thank you for all of these things and for your word. Amen.